Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 43. Hear the word of the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In addition to the serious threats to physical and economic well-being that we're facing all around the world, there's another challenge, uh, perhaps not as significant, but significant nonetheless, and that is, how do we keep our spirits up during this time when we are forced to be isolated from other humans, our loved ones, our friends, our family? One of the things that I do is that I try to avoid watching daily news. I read a weekly news magazine to try to catch up on what's going on in the world, but I try not to do what I was doing at first, and that is follow the numbers every day to see how they're getting worse and worse and worse. And I found that that's helped me because what I find at this point is that most of the news about what's going on in the world is bad news. And it's difficult to have uh, daily doses of constant bad news. And also, I need something else to talk about and to think about uh, when I'm by myself or when I'm interacting with other people. Along with the rest of the world, I'm looking for good news. And we looked forward to that day when we get some good news about a vaccine or good news about, about the diminishing of the, the deadliness or the, the, the uh, precedence of this this disease around the world. But we're looking for good news. And this is really just a reflection of our situation, our human condition all the time. Because our human condition is a dire condition in many ways. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, back in the 1650s, described it as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And he, uh, his solution was the social contract. But here we are some centuries later, and we still haven't advanced much, even with all the best political thinking in the world and all the, the best political action that humans have come up with. We are still looking for good news. All humans are looking for good news. Um, instead of good news, when we look for good news, what we usually receive is good advice. And good advice is excellent. We need good advice. We're getting lots of good advice now about how to stay safe, 
Some of that good advice is contradictory advice, and, and it's hard to figure out what's the best of the good advice. But good advice is necessary for life. And what should we do with good advice? Well, we should follow it if it's truly good advice. But if you're like me, good advice doesn't cheer me up at all. It doesn't help me through my day. It may give me some tips for going through the day, but it doesn't help me to manage my condition and manage the human condition. What we're looking for is good news. And it's not insignificant. In fact, it's very significant that when the Christian message came into the world, it was specifically called good news. And that's what Peter calls it here. He preaches this message that is the the Christian faith, that which we find taught in the Old Testament in anticipation and in the New Testament in realization or fulfillment. And it's specifically called good news. And so what we're going to do today is review the good news as it's found in this one of this first sermons that is recorded of Peter. But this is actually a new situation for Peter, and we're going to look at the situation in which he found himself in verses 34 and 35, because Peter was preaching to a new audience today. He had never done this before. Up to this point, he had preached to Jewish audiences, or audiences that were Jewish, but also with some proselytes from the nations, those converted to Judaism, mixed in. But he finds himself in this passage in the house of a Gentile. And he had not entered into the house of a Gentile before. That was forbidden for pious Jews. But God had clearly told him, go to the house of this Gentile. And he was a Roman soldier, a leader of soldiers named Cornelius. And he found when he got there that Cornelius had gathered his family and his friends and they were waiting for a word from Peter. And Peter was quite taken aback by this because even though Jesus had told his followers to go and make disciples of all the nations, it looks like what they understood from that was make disciples of all the Jews that are spread throughout the nations. It had not yet sunk in that Jesus might be talking about not only the Jews dispersed among the nations, but also the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so Peter finds himself rather surprised in this situation, and he remarks about this situation in verse 34, where he opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now this is remarkable for a Jewish man to say this. After all the centuries of being the people of God, that Peter could come to the recognition that God has no favorites among the nations. He shows no partiality among the nations. But, in contrast, verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That is, someone who fears him, reverences him, worships him according to the dictates of his word and does what is right according to the dictates of his word is acceptable to him. And Peter found himself in the home of just such a one because Cornelius was a Roman, but he was also a believer in the God who is revealed in Scripture. And as a believer, his life reflected his faith. So he was one who was a believer, who feared God according to his word, and was living according to God's word. Now, we should say something about this verse, because if it's taken out of context, we could read it very wrongly. 
And if we just read it by itself, and it says that in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, I run into many people who have a a religious stance that goes something like this. Well, I sort of believe in God. I believe he exists. I have I have a recognition that there is a God out there and I'm a pretty decent person. And so I must be okay. That seems to be the religion of most of the people I encounter. A general belief in God and a general sort of decency. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. Because if he were talking about that, he wouldn't go on and preach the rest of his sermon. But what he's talking about here is someone who fears God because that person is a believer in the God who's revealed in Scripture and then who walks according to the Scripture. But Peter is going to fill this out now. What does this look like? What does this faith look like, one who believes in this God who is revealed in Scripture? And we see three ideas about the good news today. We see, first of all, who Jesus is. Then we see what he did. And then we see what he will do. And this is a classic summary of the preaching of the gospel in Acts. And we will find this repeated all through Acts. So first of all, he establishes who Jesus is. And he begins in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news, and here it's identified as good news, of peace through Jesus Christ. So he says, what I'm about to tell you will bring you peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ, and it is good news. Now, let's see how he identifies this one about whom he's preaching. First of all, he gives him his common name, Jesus. And that was a common name in those days, Jesus or Joshua. And if you look down at verse 38, he's Jesus of Nazareth. This is very homey. This is very, very domestic. Uh, This is very earthy, isn't it? This is a man who had a hometown. Now, he wasn't born in Nazareth, but this was his hometown where he grew up, just like every other human being. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's a man who is from a place where he grew up. So he presents him as a real man with a real hometown. Then he calls him Christ. And Christ is a transliteration of a Greek word that's a translation of a Hebrew word that means anointed, anointed. And if you go back in the Old Testament, you find that there were certain officers who were anointed ones in Israel. The king was anointed, the priests were anointed, and on at least one occasion, a prophet was anointed as well. Those were the offices. But there was an expectation in the Old Testament that the anointed one would come who would bring together and sum up all of these anointed offices in the Old Testament that were anticipations of the coming anointed one. Well, with what, or we should say with whom, was he anointed? If you look at verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So we have Jesus the man from Nazareth, and now we have that he is the anointed one, anointed with what? With the Holy Spirit and with power. And then there's one other parenthetical statement here that is shocking. He says, 
back in 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then in this translation, it's put in parentheses, He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. So Peter clarified that he is not only Jesus of Nazareth, he's not only the anointed one, but he is the Lord of all. Now, this was a very challenging idea and a surprising idea to hear a Jew say something like this. And Peter was Jewish. So to say that he is Lord of all is to put him on par with the one and only God. Because every Jew knows that there is only one Lord of all, and that is the one true God. And now he is calling Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, the Lord of all. This is also challenging to the Romans, because they were required to declare that Caesar was Lord. And here we have a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, who was allied to the Roman Empire and to the Roman Emperor. And so this is a challenge that Peter is saying, Caesar is not Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. But this is not only a challenge to Jews and to Romans, it's a challenge to humans. Because we all have this pretension to autonomy. Autonomy, being a law unto ourselves, governing our own lives according to the dictates of our own standards. And so this announcement comes and says, no, there is one who is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, he is Lord of you as well. And so he has authority to tell you what your life is about, why you are here, what your purpose is, what went wrong, how you can get back. He is the Lord, and He has the authority over all. And we'll see how that plays out when we get to the end of this sermon. Now, that's the first thing. And now we go to the second. So we see who He is, and now we see what He did. And He goes on and says, you know about some of what He did. He says here in verse 37, you yourselves know... What happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. This is remarkable. Even at this early date, Peter could go and speak to people outside of Jerusalem and say, you know about this. And to say to, to, say to Romans, to say to Gentiles, you've heard about this. So this was not done in a corner. This was something that people knew about even at this early date. The word had gone out about this Jesus of Nazareth. And then he explains what he had done and what they already had heard. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And then he mentions in 38, God anointed him, Holy Spirit, power. And then what did he do? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's what Jesus did. With the power with which he was anointed, with the Holy Spirit with which he was anointed, he went about doing good and releasing those who were oppressed by the devil. And the explanation is, God was with him. Now, how could anybody object to something like that? Somebody using power to go about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the evil one. But that did not sit well with many. And so we find that in verse 30, by the, before we get to that, in verse 39 it says, we saw this, by the way. 
This is this two times he talks about witnesses. Verse 39, he says, We are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So this is not made up. This is not mythical. This is not legendary. We are eyewitnesses. We saw him going about doing good. We saw him going about releasing people from the power of the evil one. But what did he get in return for doing good? And then Peter says very succinctly in verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, he doesn't say who the they are. This is the first time that Peter is preaching to a non-Jewish audience. If you go back and look at how he preached in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, he was more direct. He said, you killed him. When he was preaching to those in Jerusalem, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. You are the ones, you and your rulers, using the, the Romans to, to, to participate in this. You killed him. But now he says, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. And it's interesting how he describes that. He doesn't use the word cross. It says, hanging him on a tree. And even though this is a very succinct verse, this expression tips Peter's hand to those who are familiar with the Old Testament, and Cornelius certainly was, because back in Deuteronomy 21-23, there is a curse. There is a curse for anyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. By, by using this expression from Deuteronomy 21-23, Peter is pointing to the meaning of Jesus' death. That, that on the cross, on that, that tree, Jesus was, was receiving a curse. And then Paul explains that more fully in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What's the meaning of the death of Christ? It's that He took the curse of those who had broken the law. The law is holy and right and good, and those who break the law are under a curse. Jesus did not break the law. We have broken the law. But Jesus took the curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then he said, they put him to death, verse 40 then, but God raised him on the third day. And this is the constant refrain through the the acts of the epistles. Whenever they preach the gospel, they're saying these things. They killed him, but God raised him. They killed him, but God raised him. They killed him, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. And he emphasizes, this is not legendary either. He made him to appear so that he could be seen. He says, not everybody saw him, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So we saw all the work he did And then we saw him after he rose from the dead. And we ate and we drank with him. Proving that it was was a human resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. Jesus was raised in his human body that God did not allow to see corruption. Now, you might think, well, how many witnesses were there? 
Maybe they just got together a few of those and, and said, let's, let's say that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's make this secret and let's just pretend that he rose from the dead and we ate and drank with him. And if people challenge us, they'll say, well, well, you didn't see him, but, but we did. We, we few saw him. But Paul explains in 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen that over 500 persons saw him. And Paul says, most of those are still alive. This is not some little secret that was made up. And I'll give you the names if you want. And he gave us a number of names. And then he said, then there are 500 more. Go ask them what they saw. Jesus rose. He was visible. He ate and drank. Now, um, because he is risen from the dead, and because he is alive... He commanded those who followed him to go out and preach. And that's what we have. And this is the the last section of the sermon. And that is what he will do. Who he is. He is Jesus. He's the anointed one. He is the Lord of all. What did he do? He, He did good. They killed him. He took the curse. God raised him from the dead. What will he do? Verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, this is a function of the fact that he's Lord of all. The Jews, most of them anyway, had an idea that there would be a final judgment. This is not especially clear in the Old Testament, but there's enough there that that they could develop this this doctrine of final judgment. And most of the Jews would have believed in that, that there's a final judgment and that God would be the one executing that final judgment. Interestingly, many Romans, although they had uh, a variety of beliefs, there was this current running through Roman and Greek religion as well, that there would be judgment after death, that there would be some giving of accounts after death. And so this was a, an idea that was part of the audience, part of humanity, and it's an idea that is still part of humanity. There's this, there's this nagging idea in our heads that, that we may someday have to give account to God for our lives and that He will judge us. And this is a function of the fact that He's Lord of all. If God's the one who's going to judge and Jesus is Lord of all, then Jesus is the one whom God has entrusted to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, you might say, Larry, I thought you said this was good news. This is not sounding very much like good news to me, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he is the one who's going to judge me. But let's read the last line of this sermon of Peter's. Verse 43, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, through his name. Now, this is where the good news really is evident that Jesus is the one who will judge us, but Jesus is the one who is the one who can forgive us for our sins. This is good news, truly good news. Why? Because all of us need this. All of us need the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because God has given us not just good advice, He's given us His holy law, we have broken that, and so we are under judgment, under a curse, we need to be forgiven for the guilt of our sins. And it's also truly good news to find out that the one who will be judging us 
is also the one who can forgive us for our sins. Isn't that good news? To find out that the judge is the one who has himself taken taken our judgment, taken our curse, and can forgive us for our sins. That's why this is good news for humanity. Now, let's go back and think about good advice. What What should you do if you receive good advice? You should follow it. And especially if it's not just good advice, but it's law, then you really should obey it. And especially if it's God's law, then you really should obey it. But if you don't, then there's a consequence. That's how good advice, that's how good laws function. But this is not good advice. This is good news. What should you do if you receive good news? Well, you should believe it if it's true. You can't obey good news. That's a a mistake of category. You can obey good advice, you can obey law, but you can't obey good news. The only thing that you can do with good news is to believe it or to disbelieve it And I urge you to believe this good news because it's true. And because if you believe this good news, you will have the forgiveness of sins through Him. I was once in traffic court. I wasn't a a defendant that time, although there were other times when I was a defendant. But I wasn't a defendant. I was there because a man in our church had gotten into trouble and uh, he was there in traffic court, and I was going to support him. But that day, I was waiting for his case to come up, but that day, the officer who had issued all the citations did not show up. And I don't know if this is always the case or not, but if the accusing officer doesn't show up, then all the defendants have to do is plead not guilty, and the judge finds them not guilty. And I was sitting watching this, And they were all going up, all these defendants, one after another. And the the judge would say, how do you plead? And the defendants, one after another, would say, I plead not guilty. And he would say, you plead not guilty, I find you not guilty. And they would leave. But then one man came running in. He was breathless, and he, he didn't know what was happening. And he came running in, and it became his turn, and he said, Your Honor, Your Honor, I I, I think he had a a drunk driving. It was a more serious offense, but he said, Your Honor, I'm not prepared today, uh, but but I'll come back. I want to have counsel when I I come before you. And the, the judge kind of smirked and laughed, and he said, Well, okay. He said, I'm not going to treat you any different than I treat anybody else, but if you'd like to to come back some other day and uh, defend yourself, then we'll do that. What had this man done? He had freedom. He had forgiveness that was theirs for the taking, but he didn't take it. In his case, because he was ignorant of what was happening. Now, there's a situation that we have that's just like that. The forgiveness is there for the asking. If we will have it, If we will receive it by faith in Christ, it is ours. But there's a difference between what happened that day in court and the difference in our situation, and it's this. All they had to do to get off scot-free that day was to plead what? Not guilty. But in order for us to be forgiven, we must plead guilty as charged. But then, in light of our guilt... Recognize that there is one who took our guilt, who became a curse for
for us and that that one rose from the dead. And that is the one and the only one who can give us forgiveness for our sins. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that we would not leave this forgiveness on the table, this forgiveness that Jesus came to bring, but that we would all receive it by faith in Him and that we would have our sins wiped away and that we would have life in His name because He lives, we also can live. We pray this in the name of Jesus, praying that many around the globe today would hear this message and that many would believe and so be forgiven, and so live. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.